Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. It's Monday, the 14th of November, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson, and it's a big day here at Melville House. You'll find out why in just a little while on this day in literary history, but first... Here's a roundup of some news from the book world. In a story that first broke on writer Todd Goldberg's book blog, best-selling schlock writer Dean Kuntz, known to some as the poor man Stephen King, and isn't that a lovely compliment, has caused a stir with a recent speech he gave at a convention of mystery writers in California. According to a report in the British newspaper The Guardian, Kuntz told the story to the crowd of his tussle with a Japanese film executive over having his name removed from a film made of one of his books. The Guardian quotes one of the letters that Kuntz wrote and uh, read to the crowd. Dear Mr. Teriyaki, it began, My letter of 10th November has not been answered. I would assume your silence results from the mistaken belief that World War II is still in progress and that the citizens of your country and mine are forbidden to communicate. Enclosed is a copy of the front page of the New York Times from 1945 with the headline, Japan Surrenders. The Guardian says in other letters, Kunz joked about the Bataan Death March and Godzilla. Kunz told the the Los Angeles Times he doesn't see what the fuss is all about and that he was going to stand by his remarks. He said, quote, There's some political incorrectness in it, but nothing mean. No word on what Bolivian writer Edgar Ramiro Renega said after police arrested him for shooting a street vendor that he accused of selling illegally printed copies of one of his books. Renega shot Carlos Flores in the chest, also hit a couple of passerby with the gunfire. The Daily Journal, a website dedicated to covering Latin American news, reports that Flores has been operated on, he's in a hospital, but that miraculously the bullet did not hit any vital organs. Renegas in the Huskow. Police are expected to charge him with attempted murder. Meanwhile, in Britain, a new book by the former British ambassador to the United States is causing quite a ruckus. DC Confidential by Sir Christopher Mayer recounts his adventures with Tony Blair and the negotiations with the Bush administration in the build-up to the Iraq War. Meyer was part of those negotiations, and he writes in the book that we may have been the junior partner in that enterprise, but the ace up our sleeve was that America did not want to go it alone. Had Britain so insisted Iraq after Saddam might have avoided the violence, they may yet prove fatal to the entire enterprise. Tony Blair's Downing Street office has refused to tell the people what it thinks of these charges and is is saying it said that it can't speak because it doesn't want to fuel publicity for the book. Of interest, 
beyond the obvious to an American audience is the fact that Mayer recounts a conversation with White House advisor I. Lewis Scooter Libby, who was in on those negotiations too. He told Mayer that Britain was, quote, the only ally that mattered. And speaking of Scooter, he's back in the news. A Cambridge, Massachusetts bookstore called Lorem Ipsum Books has released a newsletter, uh, a press release, describing another problem with Scooter's book, Apprentice Price Hate Mail. That's right, after prices for the, uh, the book The Apprentice One Up Sky High, angry emails have started flooding some of those retailers. Uh, says the proprietor of Lorem Ipsum Books, the angry emails came as quite a surprise. We regret that people feel our prices are too high, but it's just economics. And meanwhile, let's revisit for just a moment what all the fuss is about with Scooter Libby's book. You may recall the, the article that Moby Liz featured last week from editor and publisher magazine that described the book thusly. The book includes incest, a hunter who wonders if he should shag a freshly killed deer while it's still warm, and a girl kept in a cage and raped by a bear to train her to become a prostitute. That man was not only the chief of staff for the vice president of the United States, he was an advisor to the president of the United States. He had his finger on the button. What? You don't, you don't think the president could push that thing by himself, do you? Moving along... Amazon.com, you remember them. They were announced a little over a week ago on the front page of the New York Times as the company that was going to change the way we read for the first time in human history. Uh, gee, you'd think they were conducting a, an illegal war for oil that was killing thousands of innocent young men and women the way they've dropped off the front pages of the New York Times. But anyway, the company last, late last week released a wire story, uh, released a, a press release explaining that in the third quarter of the year, they'd sold more watches than ever before in their history. That's right, the company that's going to revolutionize the way we read, the company that was always known as the largest bookstore on earth, bragged that it sold 40,000 watches last quarter. Prices range from ten dollars to $100,000. And finally, in the news... Robert Louis Stevenson is one of Scotland's most celebrated authors, but uh, experts recently were stunned to discover a piece of sheet music that he'd written. It was written by a homesick and dying Robert Louis Stevenson in Samoa and presented recently to the uh, Robert Louis Stevenson Club, which is headquartered in, in his native Edinburgh. The piece was defined by the Scotsman as a jaunty piece titled Aberlady Lynx and written for the flageolet, an instrument that Stevenson himself played, although according to one club member, he didn't play it very well. His wife, Sant Fanny, his wife, Fanny, that's her name, not, you know, his wife, Fanny, certainly complained because he wasn't very proficient, shall we say, according to one, one club member. The music was recorded and presented just last week at the club's annual meeting in Edinburgh. It had been apparently uh, unknown, hidden away in a safe in Monterey, California at a Stevenson Museum. Uh, Stevenson's wife, 
that's uh, Fanny, was from California. So how was the music? According to one club member, uh, really, it's, it's just as well he wrote, because if he tried to make a living as a composer, he would have starved to death. And that's news for Monday, the 14th of November, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's November 14th, and on this day in literary history, Melville House author and namesake Herman Melville saw the American publication of his great epic novel Moby Dick by Harper and Brothers Publishers in New York in 1851. The novel, about the final voyage of the whaler the Pequod, was completely revolutionary for its time, with intricate imaginative descriptions, varied prose styles that combined methods of whale hunting, high sea adventure, and the narrator's own reflections, and all of this interwoven with references to Western literature, history, religion, mythology, philosophy, and science, Moby Dick was a wildly ambitious novel and a huge flop. Melville's earlier novels, Taipei and Umu, both South Sea adventure stories, were bestsellers, but Moby Dick anticipated the tastes of his readers and it failed miserably. Based loosely on his own experiences working on a whaler, combined with an account of the sinking of the whaler Essex, Melville wove his tale of obsession around the real life character of Mocha Dick, an albino sperm whale that lived off the coast of Chile. Mocha Dick had escaped countless attacks by whalers and had dozens of harpoons lodged in his back. And he was known to attack whalers with vengeful ferocity. It is unknown why Melville changed the whale's name to Moby. Perhaps Mocha did not evoke the pure albino whiteness of the whale. Or perhaps with the foresight of the great artist that he was, Melville was denying Starbucks, who stole their company name from the Pequod's first mate, the definitive way to order a large. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's This Day in Literary History. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. And now it's time for World Literature in Translation Hour with your host, Dennis Johnson. Today's reading will be from the famous opening of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy as translated from the Russian by the website worldlingo.com. Chapter 1. All happy families are similar to each other. Each unfortunate family is unfortunate in its own way. Everything was mixed in the house of Oblonskik. Wife learned that the husband was in connection with the governess former in their house, and it declared to husband that it cannot live with it in one house. This position continued already the third day, and was agonizingly felt by husbands themselves, and by all members of family, and by households. 
All members of family and households felt that there is no sense in their cohabitation and that on each inn the randomly joining themselves people are more connect together than they, the members of family and the households of Obliskik. Wife did not leave from her rooms. Husband the third day there was no house. Children ran throughout entire house as lost. Englishwoman quarreled with the housekeeper and wrote note to friend, requesting to prick by its new place. Cook left only yesterday from the court during the dinner. Black cook and coachman requested calculation. On the third day after quarrel, Prince Stepan Arkadich its Oblonsky, Steva, as they called it in light of, in the usual hour, i.e. at 8 a.m., it awoke not in the bedroom of wife and in its office on the Safian sofa, it turned its complete, the groomed body on the springs of sofa, as if desiring to again fall asleep for a long time. From other side, it strongly pillow, and it was forced against it by cheek. But suddenly it jumped, villages to the sofa, it opened eyes. Yes, yes, how this was, he thought, recalling sleep. Yes, how this was, yes. Alabin gave dinner in Darmstadt. No, not in Darmstadt, and something American. Yes, but there Darmstadt was in America. Yes. Alabin gave dinner on the glass tables, yes, and Paley's tables, Il Mio Tesoro, and not Il Mio Tesoro, and something better, and some small decanters, and they woman, it recalled. And that's today's translated reading for World Literature in Translation. Ted Weinstein is a literary agent in San Francisco who represents a lot of writers that I really like. So after last week's interview in which I interviewed Steve Allman about why he doesn't have an agent and why he thinks not every literary writer needs an agent, I called Ted and asked him if there was another side to that story. As it turned out, there was. I've got Ted Weinstein on the line from San Francisco where Ted is a literary agent. Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I wanted to see if we could get you to respond uh, to the conversation we started with Steve Allman, who was talking about why he, as a fiction writer, doesn't work with an agent. Sure. And I know that you handle a lot of clients, uh, different kinds of clients, but some that aren't that different from what Steve is doing. And so I thought that was a good entry point for us. First of all, why don't you tell um, uh, Moby Lives listeners about some of the authors that you work with. I represent a pretty broad range of authors, all writing nonfiction, and they range from serious scholars to journalists to just independent experts or enthusiasts who have something they want to say. And some of my clients are publishing with major publishers, some of them are publishing with small publishers. Um, for each of them, though, my role is to be on their team, not for them to be on my team. And my reaction in hearing Steve's comments on the previous episode was mostly I wanted to give him a big hug because <laughs> he had clearly had some problems in the situations. His reactions to them were totally understandable. And because of his many talents, both artistic as well as business, he has managed to represent himself quite well. And so nothing I say today should be construed as disagreeing with Steve's experience, saying it's invalid, uh, or trying to persuade an author who might not want an agent that they need to get an agent. Mm -hmm. um, 
what's right for every author is as individual as the art that they're creating. Mm -hmm. um, all I can do is talk about the structure of the industry within which artists, uh, particularly written artists, uh, need to operate mm -hmm. and say, here's how it works. Here's what I can do for my clients. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, as there are good people on the writing side of the business, there are good people and bad people on the agent side. So just because one experience has happened doesn't mean that's universal. Right. Who are some writers that you work with? Some of the better known uh, include someone like Keith Devlin, mm -hmm. who uh, many folks have heard on National Public Radio on Saturday mornings. He's the math guy on uh, Saturday morning with Scott Simon. Right. And he's done 21 books, and he actually left his earlier agency, a larger New York agency, to come work with me. Mm -hmm because he had not been satisfied with the level of attention he was getting and the level of aggressiveness and decided he wanted to work with someone else. And he and I clicked almost immediately when we got in contact. Uh, I have other clients who are first-time authors who have uh, had never published a book before we met. Uh, I've met folks at writers' conferences mm -hmm. where, despite Steve's bad experience, I've seen some wonderful writer-agent relationships flourish. Mm -hmm. um, a number of my uh, successful clients have come to me as purely blind submissions. So there really is no science to the way authors and agents find each other. There are lots of different opportunities to meet and greet and decide if we'd be good working partners. Well, one thing I think the average listener is unaware of is the, the great variety of, of kinds of agents there are. Um, they may, for example, note about you that you're not in New York. That's right. Um, how does that affect you? Uh, is, is it a plus? Is it a minus? Is it neither one? It's sort of neither one. There is definitely a uh, prejudice among many people that if you're not in New York, then you're not really in publishing. Mm -hmm. And I was a little disappointed to hear Steve's offhanded comment about the New York publishers. Mm -hmm when his publisher, Algonquin, in fact started and still has their center of their operations down in the Carolinas. Right. There are a number of uh, medium, small to medium-sized publishers uh, all over the United States, certainly all over the world. Uh, no question New York is the center of the media sphere. But in my experience, it's more valuable for me to be out of that hothouse and closer to where the more curious communities of creative people are located. Mm -hmm. Um, good ideas in our culture definitely need to go to New York to get validated and conveyed to the entire culture. You don't make a name for yourself. You do not reach a lot of people unless you get yourself into uh, the TV and magazine and book world, which is centered in New York. But by the same token, that media center, as in any culture, is rarely the place where genuinely new voices and new ideas come from. Right. You need to be out on the periphery, figuratively and literally, to have the freedom. You need to be away from the hierarchies to have that sense of freedom and curiosity to come up with something new. Yeah. And so I would much rather be out here, for example, in California and traveling all year long to other uh, communities of creative people, spending time with them. The editors, for the, especially the major New York publishers, we know where they're located. We've got them surrounded. They're all in one square mile in Manhattan mm -hmm. uh, with a couple of outposts of great publishers in places like Hoboken. Of course. But uh, everybody else is everywhere. And, you know, when I go to New York, it's an intense week or two. I was just in New York four days ago showing a client around to meet with several interested publishers. But he, in fact, comes from out here on the West Coast, uh -huh. and that's where he percolated his new ideas. Well, if the U.S. historically has had um, another uh, writing capital outside of the Northeast, it's got to be San Francisco, where the, everybody from Jack London to the Beats were headquartered. 
Uh, are most of your clients local? Are you plumbing uh, the, the, the local writing scene, or are you drawing writers from around the country? My clients actually live all over the world, um, as far away as Hanoi, Vietnam, and London, England, mm-hmm. um, to several here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, like every agent, curious to meet talented people who can be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of work to go out there. I'm certainly very involved in the local uh, literary and publishing communities but that's not the only place where I meet and work with clients. Right. And the fun thing is, in the modern day, the communications tools are remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, once you know folks, you can, especially when I deal with editors in New York, I've met them all face-to-face, and then we keep in touch via phone and email, just as they do with folks who are all the way across town. Uh, certainly lunches are an important part of the business, but people I do business with I may not have seen for a year. Yeah. And clients come to me over the Internet, yeah, I, many of my clients I have never met face-to-face, mm-hmm. and yet we've managed to uh, craft for ourselves a just wonderful, productive working relationships. Let's talk about that relationship for a minute. Um, I recently did a panel with an agent who mentioned that she was thinking of starting a specialty of representing ghostwriters because uh-huh. uh, so many books were being ghostwritten nowadays, and those writers need representation, and it, and it really brought home to me how things are changing, at least in conglomerate publishing. Um, and a- agents are changing along with them now. Agents are doing lots of editing of work and lots of publicity work and lots of right sales. And things are really changing in that world. Um, but that's one aspect of the world. What is your relationship with your clients typically like? Do you, uh, for example, have a lot of input on their manuscript? An enormous amount. I mean, as as if you were an editor, for example. Yeah, it's an enormous amount of involvement, and more importantly, an increasing amount. Mm -hmm. The point you made a moment ago about the conglomeratization of publishing is really what's driving everything else. Mm -hmm. And what's happening in publishing is it's becoming a lot more like Hollywood, Mm -hmm. where the big publishers, because they're owned by publicly traded companies that need increasing revenue every quarter, are trying to run more and more projects through their shop with fewer and fewer people which means that more and more of the work is being pushed outward towards the author. Right. And that means that in the ways that in Hollywood, the big studios basically do nothing more than finance, distribute, and market a film, and all the work is actually done by the producers, in the same way the role of the agent is becoming much more important. And that's what broke my heart to hear Steve's experience, because for my clients, uh, and really for any reputable agent's clients, we're playing an enormous number of roles. Mm-hmm. Everything from just giving impartial feedback, which everybody needs no matter what their their realm of creativity is. We're bringing market knowledge to bear, as well as our contacts and our access and so on. But then we're also giving really good, thoughtful help on career counseling Mm -hmm. beyond the boundary of a single work. Mm -hmm. All the editorial work on polishing a proposal so that it's ready to go. I've spent as much as eight or nine months with clients just working on a proposal before it ever went out to a publisher. Uh And none of that work is compensated for an, uh, an agent like me who's an AAR member. We cannot and do not charge our clients any fees. The only way we make money is on commission. I'm uh, sorry, at the back, back up. End, you are an AAR member? Yeah, the Association of Authors Representatives. Okay. And uh, aar-online.org, that's the website for the uh, association, and that's the, the, the inner tier of agents. Not every agent is a member, nor do they need to be but that's one where we sign on to an explicit canon of ethics 
uh, and it's the place where agents get together to gang up on the publishers, since they're ganging up on us. Oh, good. Now I know where you are. Exactly. <laughs> but these are all the different roles we're playing, and so often the relationship with an author is as intense after a book is sold as afterwards. Right. Um, because I've taken some time off and written a book, and I've been through those horrible emotional swings and that sense of uh, just deep despair, mm -hmm. I have been able to recognize in some of my clients when they're starting to flail a little mm -hmm. bit. And because the editors aren't hol uh, holding an author's hand anymore, um, I have sometimes had to be the one who said, hmm, let's schedule a weekly call, mm -hmm. or I'd really need to see a draft chapter by Friday. Mm -hmm. um, we're ground control, and the authors are Major Tom. Mm -hmm. So whatever is necessary to help an author do their great work is what an, uh, an agent needs to do. Do you but do rights work as well? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I work with a network of Hollywood and overseas sub-agents who sell movie deals and uh, translation and UK Commonwealth deals for me on behalf of my clients. Well, I mentioned the scenario with uh, during my conversation with Steve Allman that I'd like to have you comment on, and it was, um, well, it was regarding my orientation as, uh, as a publisher, whereby we deal with lots of agents who are um, proposing deals to us that we can't accept, and it, it often centers on rights, as a matter of fact. But I, I think it's a reflection of the changing world. So, for example, you've got a so-called mid-list author who uh, Random House doesn't want to publish anymore. And so we are looking now for a smaller home where this writer's sales um, look, look attractive. A place like Melville House would love to have an author that's going to sell 10,000 copies of a novel. Um, for, for Random House, it's less viable. So this author comes to us, but with the new kind of agenting whereby agents are dealing with uh, control of rights, uh, something that's really crucial to a small house, we're at an impasse. Um, can you comment on, on, on that particular situation? Is that, um, is that endemic? Is that uh, something that's transitory and going to change? I think, think that, that? Uh, it's more that it's it ver it's variable. That any work has a number of rights. The initial, for example, North American English publication, uh, Commonwealth translation rights, film rights, and so on. Mm -hmm. In all of my clients' deals, it is an open question which of those rights we want to sell to the initial purchasing publisher. Mm -hmm. In some cases, it makes great sense to give them world rights and all kinds of other rights because there is a fixed percentage in the contract, uh, a share that the author will get when mm -hmm. the publisher sells those right. subsidiary rights. Right. In other cases, if the author and I feel more confident that I can represent those rights more effectively for greater gain for the author, then we'll reserve some of those rights. Right. So there aren't rules, and it's not really a structural issue. Um, I think in other instances, many agents say, more and more, they're actually letting the publishers have uh, a more expansive uh, grant of rights because mm -hmm. they're actually getting very good at exploiting those. Mm -hmm. So I think it's uh, there aren't really rules to this. The bigger point is what are the opportunities, and which of the various um, elements of the publishing industry is going to be most likely to exploit those subsidiary rights for the author's benefit. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd have to say that when we see a difference in an agent when if we were dealing with someone like you where this is a negotiable issue. And I should explain to listeners that uh, most of the, the, the best American publishing houses were probably founded on the sale of, of sub-rights. 
so-called subrights, for example, there's a, a famous Paris Review interview with Bob Strauss about the founding of Farrar Strauss-Giraud and talking about how it was right sales of books, not the sales of the books themselves, but the sales of things like foreign rights and serial rights and things like that that really um, allowed the company to survive and thrive. That's right. These are the rights that Ted and I are talking about. But um, we do see a difference um, in, in types of agents, agents like you that are really representing the author's best interest and can see in the long term what's best for the author, um, seem to be uh, less concerned about the upfront income of a book uh, than uh, some of the bigger, more famous agencies, the William Morrises, the ICMs, etc. To some extent I agree with you, but I do want to make the point so that we don't sound too idealistic here. Um, I don't make any money unless <laughs> I make money for my authors, yes. And I am as interested in, in upfront uh, income for my authors as any other agency. Well, I mean, what I'm getting at is that I think some agents, such as yourself, would probably be more inclined to think, um, do I want a big advance or do I want to see this book um, uh, be better promoted, have a better royalty scheme down the road? Oh, absolutely. And I can give you actually an example of that from a client's experience. Um, working with a team of clients who are writing a wonderful nonfiction book, and we ended up getting an auction. Uh, that meant multiple publishers were interested in the book and were bidding on it. Um, ended up with two spectacular offers from two of the most prestigious publishers in the United States. And the author said, great, we'd like to speak to both editors, because we're not sure. Mm -hmm. They spoke with both, and based upon that and the specifics of the authors, they actually elected to go with the smaller of the two publishers. Mm -hmm. And their reasoning was that in the larger publisher, their book, the editor was enormously enthusiastic and talented, but their book would have been book number 12 on a list of 60 coming out in mm -hmm. the following spring, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. All numbers are suggestive, not specific. Um, whereas with the smaller publisher, not only was the editor enthusiastic, everyone else in that company was enthusiastic. They were going to commit to some marketing dollars. They were going to commit to all kinds of efforts on behalf of the book far beyond what the specific advance would be up front. Mm -hmm. And that sense of enthusiasm, the authors were wise enough to recognize, would be much more likely to pay them dividends down the road. Mm -hmm. So those, uh, of course, the decision is always going to be up to the author, but I could support them wholeheartedly when they decided to go with that smaller publisher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, long story short, first-time writer, uh, let's say a recent MFA program grad, first-time fiction writer, do they need an agent? Is, is an agent essential? It depends on what kind of writing they want to do. If somebody can ally themselves with an agent, that person theoretically would be getting nothing but good advice mm -hmm. about their career. Mm -hmm. um, as with every other professional relationship, as, as uh, straightforwardly as your accountant or lawyer or as complicatedly as your psychotherapist, these are all human relationships, and mm -hmm. there isn't a, a systematic answer to what's right. Mm -hmm. But finding the right agent early on is a good thing because of all of the advice that we are giving to an author on their career. The other piece to mention is that the other side, at the publisher's side, the major publishers are no longer taking unsolicited submissions, by right. and large. Right. After the anthrax scare a few years ago, they basically used that as an opportunity to say publicly, we're not going to accept mail from somebody we don't know. 
Now, of course, that's honored in the breach. Of course, if you meet an editor at a conference or at a local cafe, they'd right. be happy to talk with you. Right. But the number of uh, folks who are writing and wish to be published is expanding at a pace even faster than the number of books being published. Mm-hmm. And for their own safety and sanity, the major publishing houses cannot field that. That's the role that agents are playing. We're a funnel. Now, are we gatekeepers? Absolutely. Not in a negative sense, but merely in the realistic sense. Mm -hmm. There is a funnel from the six million people in America who have a novel in their desk drawer to the 20 or 30,000 novels that can be published each year. Mm -hmm. And so at every step along the way, there is a funnel, which can be frustrating for those who don't make it to the next level. Right. But if a young writer is talented, my suggestion is, first of all, just always be doing the writing and focusing on getting the writing out there in the world. Odds are an agent is scouting any of the outlets that that author might be publishing in. Mm -hmm. And as with every other agent in America, I'm constantly contacting authors whose work I see that I'm struck by, Mm -hmm. whether it's a journalist or someone writing a story in a a periodical, uh, sorry, in a a journal, or someone who's been written about, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the right answer is, first and foremost, do good work and get better at your craft. Mm -hmm. Get lots of feedback. Get your work out in as many and the most appropriate outlets as possible. And then if there are opportunities where an agent comes your way, have the conversation. It may or may not be the right person for you to work with long term, but don't fend someone off because you say, well, I'm not ready. We are, for our own professional survival, trying to meet and greet and build working relationships with authors earlier and earlier in their careers. Final question. When I was that young writer, just out of an MFA program, and looking for an agent. Agent after agent said to me, and I was a short story writer, I love your short stories. Your short stories are terrific. Do you have a novel? Yes. You ever said that to anybody? I have said that a million times. (laughs) And Steve has given you the example of that. But the reason why is agents take a lot of heat for saying short stories don't sell. Right. But let me turn this around. I have to say, as a publisher, it's a, it's a truth, by the yeah, way. Well, that's exactly right. And, but uh, in defense of both agents and acquiring editors, we're just proxies for the reader. And anthologies don't sell very well mm-hmm. unless it's uh, well-known people or the best of a particular genre. Right. That most readers, the average reader, when they open the covers of a book, they want to meet an engaging voice, whether it's a first-person or third-person narrator, right. and they want a really wonderful story that takes them from beginning to middle to end over right. the course of 200 or 300 pages. It's the same in the movies, where full-length, two-hour movies do much better with audiences right. overall than collections of short films. Well, I guess the, the hidden question there is, do you ever feel like you are uh, giving a writer... Uh, advice intended to make them be the best they are at whatever form they work in? Well, Um, I'm very upfront about it because mm -hmm. uh, if somebody wants to be just a short story writer, I'm not going to try to dissuade them, Uh but I am going to give them uh, my best perspective on the commercial prospects for the work they're doing. And that's a little bit of free consulting. Any smart uh, author in the world who happens to be in town who calls me up on the phone, I'd be happy to take them to lunch and feed them and give them an hour's free consulting. The point there is I'm not trying to push anybody to do anything because that never works. Books that are written not from the heart but rather from a commercial imperative, uh, you can tell right away and those books don't sell. 
So at the same time, though, every agent does any author a disservice by not being forthright and pointed in explaining this is the way the industry works. Right. Because somebody banging their head against a wall for three years, writing something with the expectation that it's marketable, and in the end it isn't, that has been a greater tragedy for the author. Right. Well, Ted, this is why you are the go-to agent for Mobiliz Radio. I'm delighted to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, I'm on my way to San Francisco for that free lunch, but in the meantime, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ted. And that's our show for today, the 14th of November, 2005. Thanks to Ted Weinstein for taking the time to speak to us from his offices in San Francisco. Thanks, as usual, to engineer extraordinaire Andrew Steinmetz, and, of course, to the crew here at Melville House, Valerie Marians, Kelly Burdick, and Becky Kramer. We'll be back tomorrow. We're going to be talking to that poetry guy, Alan Cordell. Seems he's kicking up a fuss again. This time he's fighting the dark star, Amazon.com. We'll tell you more tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, that whale is out there, man. Ma chambre a la forme d'une cage Le soleil passe son bras par la fenêtre Les chasseurs à ma porte comme les petits soldats qui veulent me prendre Je ne veux pas travailler Je ne veux pas déjeuner Je veux seulement oublier Et puis je fume Déjà j'ai connu le parfum de l'amour Un million de roses n'embarrerait pas autant Maintenant une seule fleur dans mes entourages me rend malade Je ne veux pas travailler Je ne veux pas déjeuner Je veux seulement oublier Et puis je fume Je ne suis pas fière de sa vie Qui veut me tuer C'est magnifique être sympathique Mais je ne le connais jamais Je ne veux pas travailler Je ne le connais